We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse, the fifth column. Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast. This is your weekly rhetorical assault in the news cycle of the people that make it and occasionally ourselves. And I'm Camille Foster and I'm delighted to be here. Uh, it took me a little bit to get here. I'd be bad things so no running a bit behind and I, literally I no one cares i, I mean i don't even know. care that's michael moynihan informing me that he does not care um, <laughs> no. <laughs> matt welch i'm sure also doesn't care he doesn't he's care barely paying any attention nope. i'm just um, happy you to know who a, might care a good looking guy on the podcast for once <laughs> <laughs> well who might yeah, care i'd like to hear more you knew about I was <laughs> yeah, there we go. Thank you, Johan Noberg, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, author of many things, and notorious apologist for neoliberal Hitler. capitalist. Oh, sorry. The neoliberal capitalist <laughs> agenda, which is destroying the world and yeah. is sure to leave us all in poverty and famine mm-hmm. and overcome by climate change and global warming. So thank you for your efforts on, on our behalf in that respect. And Johan. I just want to say one thing Thank about you, Johan, who I've known for many, many, many years. And um, it's so good to see you again. Um, but I have to say Likewise. this. Johan does make me feel bad about myself. Mm. Because when he was, I think, 11, he wrote his third book. <laughs> and, um, and it was something about, it was like a Milton Friedman biography or something. He has written more books than anyone, translated into like languages that nobody knew existed. Like, you know, Wallaf. Like it's just, uh, but you have a new one coming out, and I want to promote this because our listeners, our legion of nutcase listeners, we love you guys. But you guys buy books, and you do you mm-hmm. move lots of copies, and I think it's in September, but um, or a month away, something a month away. But yeah. Yohan, tell us about your forthcoming book, which we'll start talking about because it's something we need, and it is the Capitalist Manifesto. Yeah. Well, thank you for that nice introduction, uh, and, and thanks for the for having me. Long-time listener, first-time guest on the show. So <laughs> yeah. I, yes, cool. you I are a first-time guest, aren't you? Wow. Yes. I, I think That's I am, cool. yes. Um, yeah, I usually tend to write books about things that are in trouble when whenever I see that things are moving in a nasty direction for ideas of uh, liberty and uh, openness and dignity. I, I want to write a book about that. And uh, this time around, it seems like free markets and the ideals of capitalism and free trade are in are in dire straits. And it's not just the old leftists mm-hmm. opposed nowadays. It's also the, the right, the populists, the national conservatives. So I thought it was time to write a, a capitalist manifesto to um, restate the principles of uh, economic... Um, openness and decentralization and apply it to some of the recent controversies about, uh, well, you know, everything from the pandemic to um, inequality to global warming to China and so on, because people keep on making up new reasons to oppose free markets. uh, And then I have to keep on writing books about it. So I got a copy a couple days ago from you, a PDF copy of it. Um, Not my preferred way of reading, but, you know, I got through a bit of it and I'm very excited to read the rest of it. As I said to Matt Welch when I sent the copy to him, this is exactly the book that we and people that believe these sorts of things need right now. But there's so much in it. If I were to say, um, if I were to be one of those people that comes up to you and says, oh, Johan Norberg, this has happened, I'm sure, in Sweden, you're very well known as somebody who's a defender of the free market, defender of capitalism. I think it was one of your first books that was um, in defense. It was called In Defense of Capitalism, was it not? Right. 
in defense of yeah, global so capitalism. That's a, that was a, and glo global capitalism, <laughs> not just local so, capitalism. And so I'm thinking every 20th year I need to write a book like that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so if someone comes to you and says, um, well, yeah, that was great back then. Um, there were people that kind of said, oh, I was kind of wrong, but this trade has been very good for poor countries like India, Vietnam, uh, China even. And say, well, that's not the same anymore. Uh, things have changed. What is your kind of elevator pitch defense of capitalism? If you have to do this in a minute or two minutes to someone who is deeply skeptical, what, how do you start that defense? Yeah, this is the interesting change since I wrote that book 20 years ago. Back then, I had to defend economic globalization and capitalism against the left because they said, the world economy is a zero-sum game, and it means that with multinational companies investing in poor countries and free trade, yes, we will benefit in the US and Sweden, but the poor countries, they will suffer. And you'll see this in the next 20 years, that the poor will get poorer and the rich countries will get richer. Well, now I think that debate has changed, and it's not just because of me. It's mostly because we've seen what has happened in Bangladesh and India, Indonesia, China, Vietnam, and so on. We've seen the greatest poverty reduction the world has ever seen. But for some reason, people still think that Adam Smith only happened to other people, and they still think that the economy is a zero-sum game. And they can see with their own eyes that, yes, 100,000 people are being lifted out of extreme poverty every day. This must mean that somebody else is losing. And this time around, it must be the rich, rich countries, Sweden and the United States. And that's why people, and often people on the right and nationalists and, and populists, are, are afraid of, uh, of capitalism. And what I want to tell them then is that, you know, the greatest beneficiaries of all of this is it's, it's you. Um, you know, without um, international trade, the richest tenth of American households would lose some 10% of the purchasing power. They could get away with it, probably. But the poorest 10% would lose some 60% of their purchasing power. The, the, the greatest beneficiaries of low prices, economic specialization, and the fact that we keep on climbing the value ladder is people who aren't very well asset-rich, uh, because the only way to get those assets is to keep on innovating, specializing, and creating. Anybody, I have a follow-up here. I, yeah. <laughs> I, def I definitely have things. I mean, I, I love, I love the the point that you made there, Jan, about the the initial um, concern about global capitalism being that it will it further impoverished already poor peoples. Um, but having rescued those people from poverty in many instances and helped elevate their standard of living. The concern has changed. I, for one, will admit to have been to being somewhat surprised by how quickly the right in the in the states has vacated their prior positions. Like they used to care about free markets, and they used to talk about this sort of thing openly. Uh, and now they have suddenly, rather suddenly, I think, become incredibly skeptical of markets. And there seems to be a dominant consensus that markets aren't necessarily so good, that capitalism in general is probably bad, and what we need is a quadruple dose of populism. Um, did that shock you at all? Uh, I suspect that's partly why you've written the book, that there aren't really any severe allies of capitalism in the public square these days. Um, I, I'm curious how you felt yeah. about uh, the, or how you feel about the, the current <clears throat> evolution of things. 
No, you're absolutely right. I've, I've lost many friends in the past few years and lots of people who are reliable proponents, um, defenders of free markets who suddenly think that, oh, only the rich and, the, and big tech and China prospered because of it, uh, which is nuts. I mean, yeah, we've had 20 rough years. We've had um, the big global financial crisis and we've had the pandemic. We have war in Ukraine and so on. And yet those 20 years have still created the, uh, the, the greatest improvement in social and economic standards around the world in our countries as well. If we measure our wealth by GDP per capita, uh, around half of all the wealth that has we've ever attained in human history, about half of it was created over these past 20 years. And where did that happen? Mm. It happened in countries that liberalized, opened up and, and liberated business. So uh, it's, it's weird. And I'm surprised and saddened to see that lots of old friends and, and conservatives have suddenly abandoned those ideas when they really prove themselves. But in another way, you know, I'm a uh, I'm a historian by trade, so I'm not that shocked because there's something about conservatism and the right where the ideals are not really about always about human liberation and innovation and improvement. It's about harmony and stability, and it's always been the case that capitalism and free trade and creative destruction. It's kind of changes things. <laughs> That's not always something that conservatives are, are interested in. We used to be f close friends because we, they and we had worse enemies. We had socialism, we had communist dictatorships, and they were the, the worst enemies of, of both freedom and of traditional mores. So we could unite against the common enemy. Um, but once that enemy began to disappear from the radar, I think that many conservatives reevaluated that alliance and began to think that, look, it might not be socialists and communists who are our greatest uh, enemies right now. It's um, new weird innovations and it's big tech and it's free trade and it's migrants. They really upset the traditional way of, of doing things. So perhaps this was bound to happen and that this traditional alliance between conservatives and, and classical liberals might have been a historical fluke. I hope it's not, uh, but we'll see. How do you respond to the, uh, the, the communist, uh, in my ears, kind of um, uh, like the conservative rethink about uh, trade and uh, international kind of capitalism usually centers around China? And it is that Oh, look, they promised that if we did trade with China, China would liberalize politically. That didn't happen. So it, it failed to deliver on the promise. Meanwhile, they cheat like crazy. They steal our intellectual property. They're bad people and bad actors. God, look what they're doing in Africa. I'm not sure why it's terrible what they're doing in Africa, but it just feels it's Chinese, Chinese people in Africa. That seems weird. Um, and But like in a more serious way, it's that it didn't work. They're playing us. Um, and we're therefore enriching a an actually communist regime, and so that's why we need to rethink our traditional trade commitments. Yeah, well, you know, I take this seriously because uh, this is one area where I've really been come disappointed over the past twenty years. I hope that the economic liberalization of China would result in unleashing forces uh, that would 
topple the Communist Party or at least begin to uh, open it up culturally, politically as well. I think that happened. But the Communist Party saw that it happened. They saw that those forces were being liberated. They saw that there were independent entrepreneurs and newspapers and media organizations, and they were terrified, which is the reason why we've seen this clampdown in China over the past 10 years or so, a real authoritarian backlash returning to a more Maoist way of doing things. And that's been a disaster for the world and for China, uh, I think. Uh, I don't think that's the result of... uh, You know, there's this story that uh, they they planned it all along. If they open up a little bit to trade, they would be prosperous and then they would uh, buy all this um, uh, surveillance equipment and uh, arm their forces to, to take Taiwan. Well, interestingly, it was the authoritarian, the orthodox communists who were opposed to this opening up all the time, whereas the reformers were not, um, whereas um, the, for various reasons, the, um, the traditionalists um, have taken more power. And, and that's a problem for the future. The question is now, how do we deal with this? Uh, I, I think that we must still remember that trade with China is a mutually beneficial thing, and it's especially beneficial to us. One of the things I'm, I'm looking at in the book is, you know, Donald Trump said, you know, we, we, we've invented the iPhones. Why don't we produce them in America as well? Well, we could do that, but we'd lose a lot of good man hours and, and money doing so. Because the thing is, by being able to have Foxconn doing the routine assembly of the iPhones, we can do all the things that add more value to it. So how much does China make from an iPhone, from the uh, uh, sales price? Well, around 1.3%. And so almost 99% ends up in the pockets of Americans, of businesses, of uh, the distributors, marketing programmers, the producers of different inputs in Taiwan, South Korea, Germany, and America, and so on. So it's Still, the case that we keep on benefiting—it's not just—it's—it's it's not that we're seeing the, the huge factories, but we're not interested in the big factories. We're interested in the big bucks, uh, I think. So, so, th- so there's still an economic argument for being open uh, to China, but more so. And 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 stop me if I'm. Uh, uh, overstaying my welcome, but it's important to no, think no. about where China is economically right now because it's in a mess. Partly in a mess because mm-hmm. of this authoritarian backlash, which has reached the economy as well. It's retreated into a centralized model, destroying new um, entrepreneurial, innovative businesses in, in technology, in education, in gaming, and so on. Because they're so afraid of entrepreneurs and innovators, because they come up with they're weird you know they are american entrepreneurs are weird too <laughs> but we have, uh, but we stomach them um they don't Barely. and that's why we, they will lose in the long run but also obviously for demographic reasons there is no longer possible to put farmers into factories and in new uh, apartment blocks which means that um, the the whole real estate sector in china is, is a disaster I'm just hoping that this will be some sort of controlled um, decline. Uh, mm. and, and because if not, if this turns out to be, if we add 
some extra outside um, horrors like decoupling and uh, abandoning trade completely with China. I fear that we will see not just a decline of China, we'll see a big mess. And in that case, what will the Chinese Communist Party try to do to stay in power? That will pr probably be some ugly, aggressive actions that we don't want to see and that might threaten world peace in, in the future. So I think on all those accounts, I share the worry about China, but I think that the solutions, uh, the, the anti-trade solutions, are might be, end up in a disaster. This is um, a conversation about China right now and about what's happening in China, in the CCP, in the Chinese Politburo, and how they respond to this stuff. We are up against here in America one of the most depressing elections in my lifetime, <laughs> if not the most depressing election of my lifetime. And if you talk to people who are concerned about these issues and respond um, specifically to the kind of MAGA argument about, you know, bringing jobs back home. I've done a couple of stories about this. I did one in Wisconsin about the Foxconn bust and the idea that you could make iPhones in America. Um, and of course, it was always about the assembly. You can assemble certain things here, not make them. We don't have any the, the capability of making most of those components. And if we did, it would be a $4,000 iPhone. But <clears throat> when you talk to people in the Midwest and they say, look, look what's happened to us here and now. And what I mean by that is, you know, denuded of factories and, you know, working class jobs, et cetera. And now, and this is the question I want to ask you, because I'm sure you've confronted this bit of research in particular, you have a guy like David Otter at MIT. And David Otter has done his research that says, and you know, he's, Russ Roberts has talked to him on Econ Talk, which if you guys don't listen, it's a very, very smart podcast. And, you know, his argument is that, no, it, it was a net negative in a lot of ways for, for American, um, for working class Americans in places where there were, you know, industrialized towns. When people say Donald Trump's going to bring that back, regardless of whether or not that's true, he should. And China, we don't give a shit what happens in China, but trade with China has destroyed all of our jobs and we cannot you know, very easily transition to, you know, AI jobs, right? These are sort of low-skill uh, jobs, and they've disappeared. Uh, when, when, when a Trumpy person or a MAGA person or a populist politician, which you have in, in Sweden too, um, when they make that argument, how do you respond? Because there is... According to David Otter and some of these researchers, a certain truth to that, isn't there? Isn't there? Well, you know, it's true that we've lost a lot of manufacturing jobs, Everybody does. <laughs> Germany and uh, South Korea and all those powerhouses with trade surpluses, they've lost manufacturing jobs for a long time. China is losing manufacturing jobs. So if yeah. even the country that stole all the manufacturing jobs are, are losing them, I mean, who who, <laughs> who took them? Uh, it's the big whodunit. Um, the reason is we're losing them because we're becoming more prosperous. And when we do, we do two things. We consume more of services and high-tech goods and education and healthcare and, and less of manufactured goods. But also we automate um, like crazy uh, to be able to keep on making manufacturing competitive with the Chinese and, and others. America has sort of doubled its manufacturing output, I, I think, since yes. uh, um, around the 1990s. It's just that... But with, it's about, not, with about half the workers, uh, right? I'm yes, exactly. Not thousands of people with wrenches. It's like a couple... Yeah. You know, the old joke, it's one man with a 
with a dog. Uh, the man is there to feed the dog and the dog is there to keep the man away from the machine so that he doesn't ruin the production <laughs> process. Uh, so sure, we can get the factories back if we want, but we won't get the jobs um, back. So this is happening in every country that becomes richer and climbs the value ladder and keeps on adding value to everything that we're doing. The one region in the world where we see more manufacturing jobs as a share of the workforce is sub-Saharan Africa. And if that's the model for, for the MAGA people, I sort of go and watch the, some of their social indicators and I don't think they'd be excited. Um, but it's true, we've lost them and sometimes with great social consequences unless we can retrain people and make sure that new jobs are coming. But where does this happen? When does this happen? When did the American Rust Belt really rust? And I, I was surprised to see this uh, when I looked into the data. It uh, We lost more jobs in the, the great era of 1960 to 1980 than we've done since then. We've actually seen somewhat of a... Uh, a stabilized situation when it comes to manufacturing jobs since then. And it didn't happen. It happened before the World Trade Organization, before NAFTA, for the simple reason that they weren't competitive. They were too costly. They didn't, they had a heavily unionized workforce so that it cost more to produce stuff there than anywhere else in the world, including the American South. And uh, they were too self-assured thinking that they didn't have to care about the competition. It's only when we saw the uh, entrance of uh, Japan and, and China into the global economy that we saw something happening, adapting to new technological uh, and, and, and methodological ways of producing in a better way, that we've seen something positive happening in those areas. But I, there are still definite problems in retraining and making sure that people end up in the new jobs. But I think that's more related to social policy and to uh, lack of efficient retraining and to disability benefits and occupational licensing and um, zoning rather than something that has gone wrong in the economy. The people I most respect who have become uh, skeptical of markets or who at least make the most sophisticated arguments um, against markets broadly um, think about and, and they often do it in a nuanced way they focus on productivity um, and the fact that they're that we don't seem to be as productive as we were we're not finding new innovative technologies in exactly the right way and they also some people also approach the same thing the same they achieve the same level of skepticism, but they get there in a slightly different way, which is to point at innovation and to talk about AI and how we're going to automate away every possible job. And unless we institute certain kinds of policies, like a guaranteed minimum income, for example, um, there's simply no way that people are going to be, be able to survive going into the future. It seems to me that these two arguments are at odds with one another, which is usually why they're made by different camps. Um, but both of them do need to be contended with because we have seen periods of slower growth in some respects. We do see that, you know, the the people who are investing and who are developing new products are often kind of doing doing things that seem to be marginal improvements, that seem to be beneficial to people like us who are invested in and utilize technology in our jobs and are very much a part of the information economy, so to speak. We at least create content and are able to take advantage of that. Um, 
but then there's the other kind of specter of a potential uh, challenge on the horizon with AI um, and the concern that we need to do something about that and slow it down uh, in order to ensure that not too much change happens too quickly, which prevents people from finding those new opportunities that you were talking about. Um, I'm curious about your response to both of those things, which I suspect you probably address in the book. Yes, I do. And um, yeah, let me elaborate and let me know if I, I if I miss something. But but these are important concerns. And let me just share an, another perspective. Uh, America's productivity growth was incredible around the turn of, of the millennium. It, it peaked sometime between 1995, 2005. It was one percentage point above the historical average. And so there was rapid innovation going on in the economy and partly because of the, the tech revolution that was going on. But it didn't end up everywhere. And after 2005 and especially 2008, we've seen very disappointing results when it comes to productivity. What happened in 2008? Um, well, it was the global financial crisis. And how did we respond to, to that? It was a crisis that had its causes in um, extremely low interest rates and uh, heavily indebted um, companies, households and governments. And we solved it with even lower interest rates and even more debts on, on behalf of all those groups. And what does that mean? It's meant that we didn't have real creative destruction after the financial crisis. Instead, we tried to protect everyone who had a problematic balance sheet, including all those banks and companies who were in trouble. And this meant that we've seen lots of the, the appearance of lots of zombie companies in our economy, lots of companies who would traditionally have hmm. lost out because of uh, they, they couldn't pay their the interest on their loans and capital and labor would have moved on to other places. Um, that doesn't happen as long as the interest rates are sufficiently low. And in that case, banks don't cash in because it's well it's also problematic to do it and unless you you can benefit much from it why why would you and this is the area of the US and the western economies that have really failed lots of zombie companies that don't innovate they don't uh, use automation they don't use uh, latest technologies and methods they just stay afloat and in that case we'll obviously see disappointing um, productivity results. But there are other areas of the economy. <laughs> Often the, the most detracted, the ones people don't like, the big ones, big tech and big service companies and from the, the Walmarts to the, the Starbucks, where we've really seen an impressive thing, increasing productivity in the service sector what some researchers have called an industrial revolution in the service sector, uh, they've been able to use the latest technologies to come up with uh, more more bang for the buck all the time. So they, so really the problem is the mom and pop stores uh, who've stayed afloat <laughs> um, rather than, than big business if we're worried about uh, high productivity. Um, which goes also to, to your point about um, automation. Um, is this time different? You know, we used to be 90% mm -hmm. of the workforce in agriculture. We would expect that 89% would be unemployed right now. But once we automate, we increase our purchasing power when food is cheaper. So we buy crazy things like education and healthcare and Reason magazine and what have you. Things our ancestors <laughs> wouldn't have, have 
crazy dreamt of. And in that case, people get employed in those sectors instead. And and that's still what we're seeing in companies that keep on being creatively destructive, destroying old jobs. They keep on moving those people into new areas and and new jobs. And that's a great thing. Uh, will AI change this? It's I'm going to have to ask chat GPT about that. Yeah. I want you to defend something that I'm sure when this book comes out in the UK or the US and you're interviewed by people with the average interviewer who is not engaged in these issues, like all of us are, um, will see one chapter title and maybe, you know, arch an eyebrow and say, yo, Norbert, please defend this. And that is the chapter uh, in defense of the 1%. Uh, in the 1% since Zuccotti Park <laughs> and since uh, uh, Occupy Wall Street and the first financial crisis have been, I mean, if you said 1% in 2004, people would be like, 1% of what? But 1% <laughs> now is so common, people say, oh, yeah, 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 the mustache twisting, cat petting uh, billionaires and rich people. <laughs> you defend them as a class, um, which I imagine will <laughs> rankle a few people. Make the defense, Johan, of why you love these horrible, horrible uh, billionaires. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, Michael, do you remember Michael Moore, uh, our old uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. arch yeah. enemy? The He's miraculously still alive. Socialist. It's, yes, I wouldn't yeah. have expected that. Um, <laughs> you know, when people asked him, so isn't this hypocrisy? You, you, you blame the rich for everything. You hate capitalism, but, but you're so rich. You're, you're multimillionaire. And then he said, yeah, I, I am filthy rich. But you know why I'm a multimillionaire? Because multimillions like what I do. And I think that's the greatest Correct. defense <laughs> that anyone has ever given capitalism and free market capitalism, because that's exactly what it's about. If you've made And your also, money, it is not uh, a defense of democracy in any way, that multi-millions like what Michael Moore has to do. <laughs> makes me want to become a dictator, but go ahead. <laughs> you know, if you've made your money uh, through voluntary exchange with other people, uh, you can only become rich by enriching others. You can only be filthy rich by having given people um, goods and services that they think are more valuable than the money that they gave you. That's what Michael Moore understood. That's what Bernie Sanders understood. He, uh, Someone asked him the same thing about, you, you're a millionaire. Yes, I am. If you write a best-selling no a book, you can yeah, also write a millionaire. That's great. And I, I love books, not necessarily Bernie Sanders' books, but uh, the, the, the lack of imagination is that he doesn't understand, Bernie Sanders and Michael Moore, that this goes for uh, food as well. It goes for housing, it goes for drugs, it goes for technology, it goes for all those things. And you can only become, as long as it's a free market, and it's not the case always, so let's stick to, to those uh, perfect examples uh, for now, um, you can only become one of the 1%. Uh, in that case, sorry, that's the cat trying to wreck. The, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, wow, <laughs> that's your communist cat who's like enough of this, Norbert. <laughs> Quite the opposite, I think. Wasn't it Albert J. Nock who said that cats are the arch individualists? 
because mm-hmm. the, the dog <laughs> wants a master all the time, but the cat, they yeah. just follow their own uh, ideas. They're not interested in collectivism or New Deal or stuff like that. <laughs> She's not interested in anything. But, but okay, but let's know, go let back. Me, let, to, me, yeah. let me interrupt one thing. I just want to, I want to guide you towards what Michael Moore and Bernie Sanders, I suspect, would say in response to that. Is that yes, I'm a millionaire, and you know, a millionaire now is very different than a millionaire in 1930. Um, the problem is the 0.1%, the uber rich. I have a lot of money, but when it gets to Bill Gates level, we should uh, be confiscatory and take that wealth from them because that's too much money for one individual to have. I imagine that's probably what they'd say in response. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's too much money to have in one one government's hands um uh, with with all the agricultural and semiconductor subsidies and all the wars they they they'll use that money for. Uh but I I can see the point. That's a lot of money. But the, first we have to ask ourselves how did they get the money? Okay, sometimes this is because of crony capitalism, it's because of tariffs and subsidies and what have you, and that's awful. One of the reasons why we shouldn't give government so much money to to enrich people like that. Um, sometimes it's hap- it happens because people are just connected to, to um, politicians and they get privileges and tariffs and so on. But if they do it by introducing new technologies and new goods and services that enrich us, the more money they have, the, the better off we are. Uh, William Nordhaus, the Nobel laureate, he he looked into this and tried to come up with some rule of thumb. So how much ends up in the pocket of the super rich when they invent and distribute new technologies and methods into the economy? And he comes up with a number of around 2.2%. And you know, 2.2% of all the value that Bill Gates has produced, that's a lot of money. That's a lots, lots and lots of billions. But it means that he's given us lots and lots of in billions of increased purchasing power so that we can keep on doing other things and employ people in in other sectors uh, as well and that's a great thing and as long as it's distributed across lots of super wealthy people who are not in codes with one another and with a government i feel safe about it it's uh, when it ends up with someone one tiny group who has the same opinions and and has the same ideas on what's going to happen, then that's the worrying thing. I'm glad that we brought on Johan to talk about his book as if he didn't do anything else this week, for crying out loud. What did he do this week? I mean, he had a birthday. It's true. He turned 70. He's 70 years week. old. Pretty, <laughs> I mean, the, yeah. the Jimmy Carter cadence that he has is something that comes with age. Um, Skincare regimens. Uh, Matt, are you, are you talking about uh, Johan's tweet? Uh, that you sent us? Um, I don't think so. Did I send you Johan? Okay. You sent a tweet about Johan and uh, Anders Tegnell and the um, Swedish uh, COVID response. Oh, yeah. Yeah. oh right. right. Well, that was a link to uh, his actual piece that he, uh, a paper he wrote for. Okay. Kedu. Yes. Yeah. Sweden and we Yeah, Michael, you have about- to read the whole thread. <laughs> Through the entire thread, it's a lot of work. Do you think I have time to read this shit? I'm like, I got another like- Yohan piece. The guy's going to write a book this afternoon. I got his backlog at this point. I mean, someone's going to to ask you to write a, a flesh this thing out in a book. Uh, no, it's a, a, something that we talked about from the beginning of COVID on this podcast, particularly Michael, because I guess he lived, lived in Sweden at some point. Nope. Never um, and which is the people of Sweden wish it never happened. But <laughs> we'll look, the table that because we might come back to that uh, episode later on. Um, but uh, Sweden had a different response than other 
countries. And it looked really great at first and then looked really bad at second. And then people kind of stopped talking about it or got confused when they talked about it. And you wrote this great paper for um, Cato kind of looking at it now uh, through the um, through the hindsight that we have now and, and the stats that we have now. And it's very interesting that this lands in this country and probably in most countries this week, because this is like back to school week or back to school season. And you've seen this weird resurgence, these uh, sort of attempts for people to say that, oh, lockdowns aren't that bad, or do we need to mask up again, like in the New York Times and a bunch of other things that I thought we had safely um, murdered in the crib, uh, but uh, it keeps recurring. And Sweden was this thing, and you looked at it, and the numbers are staggering um, to me. So um, maybe uh, talk talk us about what you find. And and Moynihan, you said to me, at least uh, or to us privately, uh, Johan, did you uh, actually support these policies when they first came out? In Sweden, or do you think they're kind of going to a too crazy, lazy fair, even for you? Well, you know, it's uh, this is on record because I think my wife shared this uh, on, on social media at the time when our social democratic prime minister was on television um, talking about, look, now it's time for common sense and individual responsibility rather than government force. Uh, I yelled <laughs> something like, Go social democrats. <laughs> Go <laughs> socialists. Um, the so first and last yeah, time. no, I yeah, no, I I um I was very much in in favor of those okay. policies because you know from the Swedish perspective it didn't look like Sweden was engaging in a reckless, unprecedented experiment. It looked like the rest of the world was engaging in a reckless, uh, unprecedented experiment. We've had pandemics before, but we've never tried to shut down the world before like this. And Mm -hmm. I mean, a a virus in itself is is dangerous (coughs) enough, but ruining schooling and the economy and it might be doing even more harm. So so I'm a bit biased. I, I supported those policies uh, back then. But, uh, you know, I was open to um, also saying that this might end up with some trouble and, and some trouble ahead for, for Sweden. And at times it looked like it. And that's definitely the case in the middle of, of 2020. That's when, you know, New York Times said that Sweden is the world's cautionary tale. It's a pariah state. And Donald Trump said that Sweden was paying dearly for its uh, decision not to lock down, suffering greatly, and and so on. And then, for some reason, it all went quiet. Uh, because at that time, everyone around the world wanted me to explain what was going on in Sweden. But after that, it's the line's been dead, uh, and and people just <laughs> lost interest for some reason. So what I do in this this Cato paper, Sweden during the pandemic, pariah or paragon, uh, is looking at the result. What did we do? Why did we do it? And how did it end up? And and obviously, in some ways, Sweden benefited in an expected way. You know, our economy did better. Um, actually, at the end of 2021, the Swedish economy was bigger than forecasts before the pandemic, unlike um, most other places around the world. Definitely when it comes to schooling, um, lots of kids around the world have lost months or even a year of, of schooling in Sweden. Elementary school kids uh, had no suffered no learning loss during the pandemic, which is quite extraordinary. I think that'll pay off in the, in the long run for Sweden. But I think what shocked me the most, and definitely shocked Twitter, or X the most when uh, my uh, thread yesterday made the rounds was uh, looking at excess uh, mortality 
over the three pandemic years. Because, you know, we measure COVID deaths in different ways and we define a COVID death in different ways. So everybody told us we are going to have to wait for uh, statistics on excess deaths, uh, how many deaths compared to a previous trend, previous years, and so on. And it astonishingly, according to crude excess death rates, Sweden had an excess death rate around 4.4% over those uh, three pandemic years. And that's less than half of the European average. It's less than half of America's results. And and this shocked me, it's the lowest level in Europe. So mm-hmm. it seemed like Swedes did adapt to the pandemic. They engaged in social distancing, but in a voluntary way. And perhaps they could stick with it for a longer time because they had this exit door. If they really needed to go somewhere, meet someone, they could do it. And in that case, you can stay home longer. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you consider that uh, places that didn't have that, the United States, um, the UK in particular, I mean, it it, it brings down governments. It uh, ruins people's careers for having parties during this time when mm-hmm. in Sweden this was completely fine. You know, I mean, scientists, it was, um, who was the guy at the beginning of, of all of this? Uh, Neil Ferguson, not not the historian, right. the who uh, was, was the, the prophet of doom and then was done up for going to meet his girlfriend or someone that he was sleeping with during this time when he's telling everyone. I mean, in yeah, Sweden, that human. just wouldn't... Yeah, had, we're all human. I mean, I've done that during zombie apocalypses. I'm just like, you know what? I really need to go out. This girl is just really something else. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, the argument at the time was, okay, if you look at the sort of numbers in Belgium weirdly specifically bad in Belgium. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you look at Sweden. Okay, Sweden looks like it's pretty good. But if you if you compare Sweden to the other Scandinavian slash Nordic countries, if we include Finland, they are doing not nearly as well as places that are locking down like Norway, like Denmark, uh, and, and like Finland. So what did that look like at you know the end of all this when you when you disaggregated the numbers and I, and are there differences you know how people are housed does immigration have something to do with those numbers how did that actually shake out yeah no that's right and that's often yeah you change the peer group when you don't get the result you're you're after so lots of people compared us to to the other nordic countries yeah we did better than everybody else in the world but what about norway and finland um and it's true, it looked bad when it came to COVID uh, deaths uh, for a long time. Um, uh, but interestingly, now when you listen to the Norwegian um, state epidemiologist, you know, the guy who's in charge yeah. of their yeah. epidemic response, he says that, yeah, it looks like Norway and we, are the rest of us, we just delayed deaths for a couple of months. But now mm. we apparently end up in about the same place, especially when you look at really? excess deaths. Uh, yeah. And it's, huh. and, and, and again, that's not the case when you look at the certificates where it says this person died of COVID. And mm-hmm. there's lots of, this will keep researchers busy for years, uh, different definitions. And uh, apparently one difference is that in Norway, you're only counted as a um, COVID death if uh, the doctor thinks that, yes, this person died of COVID. And he calls the um, statistical agency and sort of, or the hospital and calls it in as a COVID death. Whereas in Sweden, you automatically look at the population registry and see, oh, this person died. And then you look at, did that person prove positive on a COVID death, uh, uh, on yeah. COVID uh, an infection? And if it's a yes, then it's a COVID death, even if he died of a heart attack or a 
or a car accident. We so should point Sweden out that Sweden, Sweden has no privacy. Yeah, you can like find out what <laughs> no. people's medical records yeah. are and the taxes they. You can pay. find out how, how much people yeah. make, and they publish <laughs> it in often blood. They're like, it's the greatest class war thing every year, and it's like, here are the evil assholes that make more than you in your neighborhood. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> really? You can do that? And like, oh yeah, Sweden, you can do that. But it's also yeah. the statistics were were really useful for people like me at the beginning of this pandemic because the statistical agency in Sweden, um, which by the way, if you don't speak Swedish, um, has a very robust website in English. It's almost exactly the same as the Swedish one. It's very, very impressive. And the the stats, you know, and again, it's it's you have to remember that it's dying of COVID, dying with COVID, and which ones are which. But regardless of that, when you looked at the numbers early on, when there was conversation about this, and they were saying, no, you too can get this, and, and you too can die of this, which reminded me, by the way, a lot, and I had this conversation last night with a friend, it reminded me a lot about the AIDS epidemic, when people were like, no, no, just to make sure that everyone's careful mm -hmm. and having safe sex, you are just as susceptible to this when you're kind of not. And so when this happened and people were saying, oh my God, you can get it too. You have to mask up. Uh, me as a type one diabetic, I could keel off and die. And then you looked at the Swedish numbers, which were very, very frequently updated. And almost everybody um, in Sweden who was dying was over 80, not over 70, over 80. It was like between 70, 75 and above was something like 80 odd percent of the people that were dying, which right there should tell you something is up. And if the other 15%, and again, these are just me, you know, giving you fake estimates here, but it was something around those, those numbers. And if those people below are, you know, have other problems, they have other respiratory problems, that would say that, you know, I think that the Swedish policy is fairly sensible, provided you're not 85 years old, when you're probably not going to uh, a, a concert at Globen anyway. So, mm -hmm. You know, a policy right. that, that, that actually staves off disaster and saves people's lives for even a couple more years is, is not necessarily a bad policy. I think it all becomes a matter of what the cost is that you pay for this. And if you are seeing severe learning loss and all sorts of other dramatic after effects, um, then it's it's worthwhile to consider whether or not that's a good policy. But the thing that I've been most astonished by with respect to the fallout from COVID is our utter lack of interest in just what worked and what didn't work from kind of a national policy standpoint. And I mean, there is so much wrong with U.S. policy these days. I think it was just yesterday I saw that video of Mitch McConnell um, receiving a question from a reporter asking, are you going to run again? And he's just standing there. Just standing there, not saying anything, and it's and it's indicative of what we've seen with with Biden and Feinstein and um, uh, Fetterman. It, but everyone else, I imagine in DC, generally when you put it that way. What's that? That is so terrifying. It's bad. Just, I was like, wait a second, all of them? Yep. Yeah, they're all dead. Yeah, none <laughs> of them died on the job. None of them are and capable weekend, of doing their job. It's like fucking job. weekend at Bernie's. But like this, we're just propping these people up. But it's even worse Good than Lord. that because. <laughs> Because presumably the rest of Washington, D.C. is awake and they are, they are, they are competent Barely. to do their jobs and they are similarly completely disinterested. They're not talking about this. We're not having yeah. robust committees about what have been like the, the most consequential um, economic and social policies instituted in our lifetimes and certainly with the the amount of kind of speed and concern it was an overwhelming dominant concern for a little for 2 3 years 
And then we have just simply developed a kind of amnesia. And at this point, aren't even willing to look at this and scrutinize what worked and what didn't work. And that bit is a bit is a bit terrifying, especially because we are looking at this new wave and new variant and having similar sorts of conversations again. And I'm not hearing people clamoring for masks. Uh, I'm not hearing people clamoring for lockdowns or anything like that. Now, I have heard some uh, concern about uh, death rates and hospitalizations, um, but things are at a, a kind of low. There's there's a low hum. Um, as opposed to, you know, a lot of, of agitation. But it's not hard to imagine there being a great deal of agitation again. And it's not hard to imagine the next pandemic. And it is hard to imagine us having a much better response, considering we aren't willing to talk about what worked and what didn't work in a sober way. Yeah, no, this is an incredibly important point. And I, I thought zombie companies was bad enough, but this is like a zombie culture. <laughs> and zombies, <laughs> literally, literally yeah. as well. Uh, but I, I think there, there are two reasons. One, one of them is that, I mean, we kind of forgot the pandemic, right? We forgot the kind of life we led uh, for for lots of months and just went on with our lives and we didn't want to revisit that. But also, I think that you know the the key to good decision making is it's not not making mistakes. We all make mistakes, but it's to learn from. Sure, it. that's why thriving open cultures and a capitalist economy is great because we've got so many people, millions, billions, making mistakes, and we're all learning from them. And we're it's it's a process of discovery, and then we'll do things better the next time around. The problem when it's government governmental decisions is that we don't have those mechanisms because it's not the same kind of um, self-interest involved. It's not the same kind of competition involved. It's like you want to, you don't want to defend what you've gone through and you definitely don't want to admit any kind of mistakes. And, and this is why I think that revisiting Sweden's experience has been so incredibly painful for lots of decision makers in other places because they all, and now again I quote Norway state epidemiologist Preben um, Avistland, who, he he said this. Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, a fake I, name. <laughs> I know he's been giving you a fake name. He doesn't, he's not even from Norway, he's from Indiana. And he's like, oh man, Johan's falling for this. My name's Preben. <laughs> and you know what Preben Avistland said? He said, he said that, uh, uh, you know, Everybody was unsure of what was the right response to the pandemic, and and sure. that's fine. But they yeah. panicked, and inspired by Italy, which in turn was inspired by China, they just went with the, the hard lockdowns. Because if you do the same kind of mistake that everybody else does, no one is going to blame you. But if you're the odd man out and you suffer a disaster, then everybody will think you're the worst person on the planet. But it was easy to go with the flow. And as Preben Avitsland uh, said, uh, Sweden became the contrast that they did not want because it undermined the mantra that we have no choice and forced them to yeah. explain to their citizens why they did Correct. what they did. And that's why I think that they are very unhappy with my paper right now. Yeah. To be 
It, it, did, it, did the paper get any coverage in Sweden? I mean, I remember when I lived in Sweden, like uh, Dagens Nyheter, the main newspaper, used to have a little section. People are talking about Sweden outside of Sweden. What are they saying? And it was like always if someone wrote an article about yeah. Sweden in like the San Jose Mercury News, they'd have seven people covering it. Did your uh, paper about this get any attention in Sweden? I mean, do people generally agree with you that we did it right? Or is there a kind of robust debate in Sweden? Like in America, what happens is obviously, and you know this, Johan, is it falls on ideological lines. And that's why I saw some people on the right in Sweden attacking the Swedish uh, approach because the Social Democrats were doing it. And you know those, yeah. those people too, I'm sure. And um, I just wonder if, like, if, is that still a debate that happens in Sweden? Or is it just say it's kind of been ignored or just people say, yeah, we got it right? Well, first of all, it's, it's interesting how those things fall almost arbitrarily along ideological lines. In Sweden, it happened to be the Social Democrats <laughs> who were in, in favor of sort of an open policy, which meant that the right-wing populists were the only ones who opposed it in, in Sweden. Mm. So uh, the Sweden Democrats, they were the only ones who said that Anders Tegnell should leave. He's lost our, our yeah. confidence and they wanted to shut down schools. Uh, so, so it's really strange. Um, interestingly, you know how Sweden works. Uh, usually your paper doesn't get much attention until the rest of the world is interested. Then it's a, <laughs> it's a news item in itself. But look, the rest of the world is interested in Sweden again. So let's, <laughs> let's look at that. Um, so there is some debate. Uh, I'd say overall, though, people don't want to revisit it in Sweden either because it was yeah. painful. It was very painful to be the odd man out around the world and being told you're a pariah state and not even Donald Trump likes your open policy in, in, in Sweden. Uh, so it's like we've moved on as well, just thinking, oh, we probably, it was probably okay. So sometimes it's uh, it's a shock to Swedes as well that actually we seem in many ways to have done much better than, uh, mm -hmm. than the rest of the world. To Camille's point, um, though, you guys had a Corona Commission, great name, um, to look into it and to assess the governmental performance. I was thinking about this, I think probably in reaction to your initial tweet storm or earlier this week, someone um, uh, kind of said out loud, could you even imagine in modern America there being oh, a federal commission about this? Um, and it's funny because 20 years ago, th there was a huge debate and I took part in it, um, being very critical of the Bush administration at the time about 9-11 uh, commission. Um, the Bush administration and Dick Cheney in particular did not want to have one. They dragged their feet for a long time. And uh, critics, I'm sure many were being opportunistic. But from my point of view, it was like, uh, don't we want to know what <laughs> what happened? And like, what were the intelligence failures? And, and uh, what were the uh, arrangements that we had with certain countries? And what made sense and what didn't? Like, we should be seeking knowledge. What the hell are you dragging your feet Who for? Who blew up the towers? Oh, as stop it now. <laughs> um, they, they, don't, they don't need to investigate when they already know the answer. No, they know the answer. It was told to them by, by I, uh, immortal uh, techniques. Yeah, immortal, immortal techniques. Bush broke down the towers. <laughs> I learned everything I know about 9-11 from Eminem's song Mosh and the video too, which kind of explains everything to apparently Vivek Ramaswamy. But uh, anyways, uh, we, <laughs> we, had, uh, we had that as a possibility 20 years ago. Now it's just unthinkable. You wouldn't, like, they wouldn't do it. And you have, this week, I swear to God, because I'm writing about it, um, the White House uh, released a fact sheet 
And then uh, Camille's girlfriend, uh, Karine Jean-Pierre, uh, went on and because oh, uh, 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 Biden and uh, and then Dr. Jill Biden was at a, were at a middle school. And she's like, yeah, you know, uh, she's an epidemiologist. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> you know, Democrats reopened schools here. It was, uh, if you recall, uh, it was because because Donald Trump didn't have a plan to reopen schools, but we did. So that's right. why all the schools right. reopened. Um, so people <laughs> were just blatantly <laughs> lying bullshitting telling themselves crazy ass things and and the farthest thing in in, in your mind is that I'm there would fucked. ever be a commission so talk why did the corona commission happen um what was it and how did it lead to your some of your conclusions well first of all there are, there are a couple of differences and one of them is that uh, it the swedish policy wasn't that controversial in sweden at the time there was some opposition, but throughout the period, you know, in polling, 50-60% uh, was in agreement, no more than 20% opposed. All the major parties, political parties, were in favor of it. The only odd man out was the Sweden Democratic Party. Uh, but even they, after a while, sort of... Um, toned down their opposition. So it wasn't as fiercely fought over, uh, even when it happened in Sweden as it was in the US and in many other places. And I think that one of the reason might, reasons might be not just our traditional consensus culture, but also the fact that the government didn't tell people what to do. So it wasn't mm. so heavily politicized. People weren't angry to the extent that they were in every other country. We didn't have drones following people who were out taking a walk or, or jogging in, in Sweden, unlike in, in Britain and other places. So uh, it took some of the heat out of the conversation and it made it possible to have um, more of a, an adult conversation afterwards. But it's also the case that we like commissions in, in Sweden. <laughs> that's <laughs> and that's a, could be a part of our bureaucratic and our consensus culture. It's uh, we we love to investigate things, and if it takes years, even that's better. There, there's a Yoang Commission right now uh, investigating his paper for Cato. It'll take three years and about uh, three billion crowns. But um, let's we've kept you a while, Yoan. So I want to I want to hit one one more thing. It's something that you wrote as a kind of uh, mini book, and it's something that you're asked to discuss. Um, probably have asked, been asked to discuss for 25 years, and that is the fact that Sweden consensus culture, Sweden is often held up across the world as an incredibly successful socialist country, a left-wing country that we should emulate. Bernie Sanders has mentioned this, like, no, 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 we're not talking about Venezuela, we're talking about Sweden, that's always the mantra. You have um, a very, it's, I, I think, you know, I know a lot about this stuff, I've read your stuff over the years, I've read a lot on this, a kind of bulletproof response to that. And that is how Sweden developed and what Sweden actually is. And what people think Sweden is, you say, is not exactly right. This, this uh, kind of lefty paradise. Tell us about the new kind of book pamphlet. I guess it was for Fraser that you, you wrote this in Canada. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about that and what the general argument is, because I think our listeners are very interested in this and they hear it all the time like I hear it all the time. Yeah, no, definitely. I get that a lot. Whatever I talk about in the US or in most places around the world, one of the audience questions is always, what about Sweden? Are you socialist? Are you the example of a successful socialist uh, place? And um, I sometimes try to tell them that, you know, when Eisenhower, I think in 1960 said that Sweden, oh, that's the 
country of um, suicide, <laughs> high taxes, and free sex. Um, yeah, yeah. At, at that time, you know, yeah, One we had more. Su- <laughs> <laughs> we had more suicide, but that was just a secular country counted it more honestly and accurately than you so know. We didn't pretend that the guy fell from from the skyscraper. Um, and uh, we had lower taxes back then than almost all European countries and lower than the United States. And I'm not even sure about free sex. So lots of the <laughs> mythology <laughs> about Sweden is, uh, is, is not accurate. The, the fact is that we got rich. We became one of the richest countries on the planet after a 100-year period of very limited government, low taxes, free trade, and that made us incredibly prosperous. Um, and as late as 1960, again, we had a smaller government than most Western countries uh, around the world. That brought us wealth. Then, for a brief, odd period in time, our politicians thought, look, we're invulnerable. We've got it all made. Because of free markets and staying out of two world wars, we're, we're so rich, we can do anything. And that's when we got interested in socialist ideas. And then for a 20-year period, we experimented with everything, with uh, perhaps except free sex then. But high taxes would double the size of public consumption as a share of GDP. We socialized businesses. We had price controls. We had uh, uh, regulations on the labor market. And that was our socialist period. And this is what, what people remember around the world. This is what Bernie Sanders remembers, that in the 1970s, it looked like Sweden was a socialist country and yet one of the richest countries on the planet. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. it's like that old joke, how do you end up with a small fortune? Well, you start with a large one, and then you waste yeah. lots of it. And that's <laughs> what we did. Those 20 years were not our golden era. It was really the Atlas Shrugged moment of of Swedish history. Uh, this is the one period in Sweden's modern economic history when we lagged behind other countries. We didn't create a single net job in the private sector. We didn't create any new big businesses on the contrary. IKEA and Tetra Pak and those successful companies, they left Sweden because they couldn't yeah. do business anymore in Sweden. And, and entrepreneurs too. left us. Yeah. Uh, everybody um, just got out <laughs> before it was too late. And this yeah. all ended in a disaster. And it's, we tried in sort of a debt and inflation-fueled boom in the late 80s to keep it alive a bit longer. It ended in a terrible financial crisis uh, and with mass unemployment, and for a brief period of time, uh, the central bank had to impose an interest rate of 500%. Yikes. Nowadays, we think that 5% is extraordinary and it's brutal. Yeah. This was 500% to get yeah. anyone to lend anything to Sweden uh, because everybody wanted to, to get out. In the early... In the early 90s, you have that brief interregnum, and this is, seems to be what happens in Sweden. You have, you know, en parti staten, like the one-party state of social democrats, and then you have a little interregnum of conservative, quote-unquote, um, um, uh, the, the, I always make a joke that Sweden is so kind of bland in a way that even its conservative party is called the moderates and like the, the moderate <laughs> party, which is the right wing party, uh, came in and changes things, right? So they salvage kind of some, some stuff. And then you kind of go back to another cycle of social democratic government. I mean, you have to kind of break up these policies once in a while for them to kind of revivify the economy, right? I mean, it hasn't no. been since, you know, 1972 or something to, I guess, the early 90s, that was just all uninterrupted socialist rule, right? 
Oh, yeah, since the early 1930s, they ruled until 1976. Um, and uh, then we had six years of, of center-right governments, but they basically had the same kind of policies, and then the Social Democrats were yeah. back. So basically from the 1930s till 1991. And um, they, um, they admit that now, the Social Democrats, and they actually the Social Democratic Finance Minister of the 1980s, he said that, yes, yeah, some of the policies were unsustainable and they were absurd and they were perverse. <laughs> so, so actually when the uh, center-right got back in power in the early 1990s and they began to reform the economy drastically, uh, limited the government again, reducing taxes, privatizing companies, they often had the support of social democrats who realized that yeah. this experiment went too far and we have to go back to the kind of model that uh, gave us prosperity in the in the first place. So and now we're kind of back to a more normal situation. Social spending is, is higher than in the US, but it's the an average European level. And on most indicators of um, product markets, uh, economic freedom, Sweden is a more free country in many ways. If Bernie Sanders want to imitate Sweden, he would have to implement now social security reform, including partial privatization and a school, national school voucher system. He would have to reduce uh, taxes on on the rich and uh, no inheritance tax, no property tax. Uh, we um, he'd have to lower corporate taxes to get to Sweden's level because um, Swedes understood that yeah we can have a big government or we can make the few rich pay for it all, but we can't do both. So instead, um, lots of that tax burden falls heavily on low and middle income households. Instead, so That's high personal taxes in Sweden. Yes. F f first of all, I mean, the bulk of uh, taxation comes from the um, local regional taxes around 30% of everybody's income. And then it's uh, just a tiny share, which is the sort of the progressive bit on top. But then we also have a 25% uh, value added tax on all uh, goods. Well, it varies a bit, yeah. but you know, it's the kind of regressive tax where the poor pay exactly the same when they buy my book, uh, as, as uh, mm -hmm. uh, Ingvar Kamprad of Ikea, Ikea would, would do. Um, and because, but you know... taxes on books, though, right? That's actually true. Exactly. That's There's an exception. We like books in Sweden. <laughs> yeah, it's an books and commis books. public commissions. Yeah. But how do you, Johan Norbert, how do you get around this tax? Uh, all these taxes. I know that you, uh, you do well as, a, as an author. Uh, you have a nice apartment. Um, do you, can you tell us on this uh, program, or are you yes. going to get busted by the tax authority, that you have a shell company <laughs> in um, the Canary Islands or something? Divulge you want schemes. some personal finance advice? <laughs> yeah. I do. I do. Well, I always thought it was funny that that it was, um, uh, was it Ingmar Bergman, uh, uh, Ingmar Bergman, the director who um, kept most of his wealth outside. I mean, a lot of these people kept, kept their wealth outside of the country in famous yeah. people who yeah. would, have the, would have their entries into Sweden uh, monitored because unless you spend, what, it's more than half the year somewhere else, the government will, will take your money, right? Yeah. And you do what the Wallenberg family, famously rich, uh, traditional business yeah. family in Sweden do. They put it all in a foundation and it's yes. kind of non-profit, so it, it works out <laughs> in the end. Uh, but usually what people do uh, is that they try to put as much of their lives uh, into their companies because companies are, are a little taxed in, in Sweden. So if you can make sure that most of your um, – 
entertainment comes from books that you would normally read on the job or (laughs) tv channels or recent subscriptions or what have you Mm -hmm. Uh, then then it's and the dinners which is all representation and so on then you can lead a pretty good life uh it's only in sweden (laughs) it's only just gave away his strategy by the way um (laughs) and i want it's only difficult sweden I want to tell the tax authorities in Sweden that the uh, subscription to Reason is not $6,000 a year. Um, so you might want to investigate that. <laughs> He's hiding his money. <laughs> uh, uh, we, but really, we, the problem is being a low-wage uh, worker without yeah, a, a yeah. company in which you put your, your wages and profits. That's Then it's difficult, and especially if you need things like food and <laughs> and stuff then you're heavily taxed in sweden but because, because you know the poor that's what social democrats in sweden realize the poor are loyal taxpayers they don't have tax attorneys they don't dodge they don't move to monaco so that's where we we hit them there um we have to ask you before you leave um to tell us what it was like when you first met baby michael moynihan in sweden and <laughs> how much you immediately hated his guts <laughs> that is not true. No, that's absolutely untrue. But I'll uh, let no. Johan. I remember he wrote something very nice about me on his old blog. So yeah, I'll dig that not. up if he, if he lies about this. Um, so continue. I, I killed that blog, and I don't think it's archived anywhere. Uh, but actually, I <laughs> oh, I have it. <laughs> actually, I think it, we met out on at, on town. Uh, it was Shocker. this weirdo running around with a Per Allmark book. Um, oh, yes, which yes, is yes. Um, sort of used to be the leader of the, the Swedish Liberal Party and a sort of arch enemy of the totalitarian left and exposes them in book after book and sort of get yes. the quotes and stuff. And, uh, and apparently this guy approached me and told me that he had just, uh, he's just visiting, perhaps settling down, and he, he just learned Swedish from reading Per Allmark. Yeah, from, <laughs> and that was love at first sight. I knew that this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Uh, it was it was uh, Benson and Tiranet, uh his uh, book that is essentially a laundry list of all the idiotic things that Swedish intellectuals said about the Soviet Union and Cuba and East Germany, etc. And I was like, wow, they have the same assholes in Sweden that they have in America. Now I just have to shift my guns towards these idiots, uh, which I which I did fairly quickly and didn't make a lot of friends uh, outside Yuan and a few other people. <laughs> so we have a slight slight technical issue um, from Camille uh, from his new tech company yeah. that he's working at. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's disappeared. But Yuan, who's joining us uh, from the Arctic Circle, is uh, his internet connection is fine um, because of socialism. But uh, here's a couple things that you guys, um, our dear listeners have to do, and that is pre-order uh, Johan's book, uh, which is The Capitalist Manifesto, which will be out, I believe, in September, Johan. Is that true? September in the U.S.? Yeah, or September just in 19th in the U.S. Great. Okay, September 19th in the U.S. Order it. I believe he'll be here on tour, book tour, doing events and things like that. So check out uh, Johan, Nor- Johan Norberg, I have to do it in that way, .net, uh, where you'll see all those uh, events. And by the way, a million other books besides uh, that this man has written. So uh, check them out. They're all great. And it's not just because he recognizes that I was the greatest import uh, to Sweden since Coca-Cola. It's just because he's also very good at his job and a defense that we desperately need right now. Johan Norberg, thank you so much 
for taking a bit of your afternoon and joining us here. And we hope to have you back soon. Thank you. My pleasure. And let me know whenever Sweden does something hugely controversial again, I'd be happy to be back and defend it. We didn't get to talk to it, but apparently there were four explosions in separate cities last night in Sweden, but we'll figure what out <laughs> what happened and then we'll call you about it. So. And let's, uh, let's, let's yep. get you uh, uh, in New York drinking sooner rather than later. Thank you, Johan. Thank you, Love to. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse, the fifth column.